Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, with a message entitled, Final Words to a Steadfast Church. So turn to your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 28, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It is possible to remain steadfast, unmoved, unwavering, and resolute in the darkest of days. Winston Churchill once famously said that when you are going through hell, one should keep going. That is, don't lie down and quit. Of course, he didn't mean hell in the biblical sense. He meant it in terms of going through the darkest of days. And we find out a lot about ourselves when we observe whether or not we've been resolute in the darkest of days or whether we've despaired. You know, I've taped these lessons from Thessalonians while the world was on lockdown due to the coronavirus. Our borders have been shut down, schools, bars, restaurants, athletic events, and churches. They've all been closed. A great many people have lost their jobs. We're in quarantine, and many are asking when it's going to end. You know, others are asking when will scientists come up with a cure, and still others wonder whether we're only at the first wave of the disease and and others wonder if the economy can recover from such a shutdown. Some have hoarded everything from toilet paper to food. Governments have started making payments to those who have lost their job and are in danger of losing everything. Some landlords are threatening renters with evictions. Some have hoarded food in an effort to sell it at greatly inflated prices while the stories go on and on. But others have used this occasion to show acts of kindness. It's heartening. The courage and skill of our healthcare workers has inspired almost everyone. It seems this time has brought out the very worst in some and the very best in others. You know, seen from that perspective, this is an interesting time to be alive. But as I record these words, these are indeed the darkest of days. And the thing about endurance is that it is especially tested when we don't know how long the tunnel we're going through is going to last. Will the virus slow down in the summer or only pick up again in the fall and will be left exactly where we started? Can the present social cohesion last? But still others have asked, where is God in all of this? And the problem with answering that question is that the premises that underlie the question are almost always wrong. The God that many people imagine is a God who does not order all things for his glory. Such a thought has never even occurred to them. The God they imagine is a God who exists only to keep us comfortable and free from trouble. So where is that God now? We've already seen that the newly formed Thessalonian church was under no such illusions. Remember back in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 3-4, Paul encouraged them that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. You know, that was helpful. These believers never asked, where is God in these dark times? I mean, these new believers, without even a pause in the action, went from conversion to persecution. They were under no illusions that God exists to keep them comfortable and free from trouble in this life. The great apostle had taught them a different set of values. The world was not their final home. In Paul's second letter to this church, he would explain to them that the Antichrist is coming. 
and that great evil would attend before the coming of the Lord. See, these believers knew that distressing times were their lot, but they were attended by a great hope. Their hope was not that the persecution would end, and eventually, you know, life in Thessalonica would return to normalcy. Rather, their hope was that one day their Savior and Lord would part the clouds, and he would come to judge the world, and their hope is that they were not the subject of wrath on that day, but that they would attain to salvation. But that doesn't mean that the dark days suddenly get easier to handle. But there are things that can be done. You know, in this last section of 1 Thessalonians, which we're going to study today, Paul ends this letter by giving five commands for believers in dark days. And then, now that we have understood the commands, he offers a prayer of blessing before closing the letter. So let's look at the five commands, and as we read them, let's see them as commands for us as we live in dark and distressing times. So I'm reading 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 22. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let's take them one at a time. The first command for remaining steadfast in distressing times, wait for it, it's rejoice always. (laughs) Now, you and I should know that this command is very different from the idea, don't worry, be happy. This is not a command to capture happy thoughts and ignore the crisis. It's a command to find joy first in God and then in his salvation. But in the context of this book, chapter 4, verse 18 The believers were to encourage each other in anticipation of the Lord's coming. And also in chapter 5, verse 11, they were to encourage one another by building one another up. We have to assume, therefore, that they were to look to the biblical causes of joy. And by the way, let me speak personally. You know, as this pandemic wears on, you know, I've been cooped up in a room in my own house, which has become my office. My wife is at work as a nurse, and I'm at home alone, and it's quiet, and I have very few interactions in every day. And I've asked God to give me joy in my surroundings. I'm learning thankfulness for these days. I've asked God to help me find great delight, for he has planned these days for me. And you might do the same regardless of your circumstances. So how do we gain such a perspective? How can we come to embrace God's sovereignty God's care over us in all circumstances and still find ourselves happy. Unless we think that happiness is impossible, think again. P.J. Gloag said the following, God wishes his people to be happy and does not suffer them to be indifferent to their own peace. He commands them to rejoice. Hope you heard that. Be joyful always. God commands your joy. Let's now go to the second command. Pray without ceasing. I do know this, if you are or have been quarantined, well then, use the opportunity to reacquaint yourself with prayer. And if you want to know how to pray, I suggest you reacquaint yourself with the Lord's Prayer. And after that, pray about everything. Tell God your concerns and your fears. Recount to God that you're aware of the promises he's made towards you. Pray for loved ones. Pray for your country. Pray for the world. Pray for the progress of the gospel. Pray for your finances. But above all, when you pray, don't forget to worship and to praise and to express delight in him. Command number three, 
Give thanks in all circumstances. And I know, I know, all sorts of people have pointed out that we don't give thanks for our circumstances. But I think that misses the point when we say it that way. We should, as we are expressing thanks to God, thank him for the truth of Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Now, the Greek word for giving thanks, well, that's the same word that Paul used way back in chapter 1, verse 2, when he told the Thessalonian believers that he was always giving thanks to God for them. So the thanks that Paul has in mind is that we offer thanks to God. In all circumstances means at all times, for everything. We need to look at our most distressing times, and we need to find that God has so arranged these days for our eternal and our long-term good. Knowing that, we owe it to God for so having arranged these distressing days. We need to look deeply unto him and express reason for thanks. Now, before we move on, would you notice how important Paul thinks this matter of giving thanks actually is? You know, he tells us that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, this is the second time in this book that Paul has made mention of the will of God. The first time was back in chapter 4, verse 3, where he said, This is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness. See, I made mention when we discussed that passage how often believers today try to find the will of God around what they should do in life. And I've said, you know, quite frankly— God doesn't often tell us in plain terms whom we should marry or what career to pursue, but he does tell us quite plainly what his will is about certain things. It makes no sense to pursue God's will in an area where there is no clear revelation and then to ignore his clear will when there is a revelation. If you want to pursue God's will for your life, especially when days become difficult, then do this. Give thanks in all circumstances. Command number four, do not quench the spirit. That's a lovely command. Another looser translation says, do not put out the spirit's fire. The verb for quench is sometimes used for putting out a flame. So what's Paul getting at? And to get even more practical, what does it mean to quench the spirit? How do we know when we're doing it? And what actions can we take to ensure that we never, never quench the spirit of God? Companions can be defined as people who band together for a common cause. Their combined resources accomplish together what they couldn't on their own. Well, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the clear, reliable teaching of God's Word, but we understand this great calling is not a solo effort. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is introducing its new monthly partnership program called Companions for the Gospel. Companions for the Gospel consists of individuals across Canada who choose to pray and support ongoing Bible teaching in the form of a consistent monthly gift. The result? Lives transformed. To find out more about joining Companions of the Gospel monthly partnership, its impact, and the exclusive benefits it offers, or to offer a gift today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Paul's teaching about the Holy Spirit, and by that, I mean what he teaches on this matter in all his letters. Well, the sum total of that 
is a far larger topic than I can deal with in one message. However, let me detail several things that might be relevant to this matter of quenching the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches that all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. That is, for every true believer, the Holy Spirit is affirming the assurance of God's eternal love for us. Paul also teaches that when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit helps us in our praying. We know that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our own sins. He leads us to repent. He leads us to claim promises like the one found in 1 John 1 verse 9. Paul teaches us that when we walk according to the Spirit, we're not walking according to the flesh. See, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the power to overcome sin. Paul also teaches that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a foretaste of the goodness of the world to come. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts for service as well as producing fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. In all these things, don't try to suppress what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. If he's convicting you of sin, don't you ignore it or avoid him. When he's working to produce love in you, don't resist. And furthermore, when you are particularly distraught over the distressing times in which you live, don't ignore the foretaste of eternity who lives in you. Don't put out the Holy Spirit's fire. Rather, yield to his work in you. Now, Paul's already given us four commands. They're important commands for all God's people who live in distressing times. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Now comes the fifth and final one, one that needs some care and unpacking. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from what is evil. See, I need to say here that this command requires some care in unpacking it because this verse is differently understood by different people. You know, those in the charismatic community often welcome this verse as a command that spontaneous prophesying should be allowed among God's people. And then, on the other hand, there are those who are cessationists. They argue that prophesying was a necessary part of the Christian community before the New Testament was completed. You know, they will say in those days, when the church had no access to the four Gospels or the completed Pauline literature and the rest of the New Testament, the church often relied on words that might be delivered by itinerant preachers. You know, one example might be that of a very effective preacher and evangelist. He was a man named Apollos. In Acts chapter 18, Luke tells us that he was an eloquent man and that he was competent in the Scriptures. And by that, Luke meant that he was able to teach the First Testament and show from it that Jesus was the Messiah. And we are told he was extremely effective. But Luke 18 verse 26 says that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained the way of God more accurately. You know, that's because at that point in time, there was not yet a completed New Testament nor a formal approach to teaching people in the New Testament. So those in the cessationist community are going to say, look, before the completion of the New Testament, you know, things were pretty wild and woolly, and often one would require words of prophecy to clear things up. But now that the New Testament is done, we don't need that anymore. Now, look, I'm not unaware that for me to comment on this matter can only get me into trouble, but here we have a word from Scripture. 
And it tells us not to despise prophecies. And since I'm a Bible teacher, I I just simply can't ignore what the Bible says. So I will try to understand this as best as I can. From my perspective, there were prophets that are mentioned in the New Testament that have nothing to do with teaching people the true intent of Scripture. It seems undeniable. Here's the most famous example. It's in Acts 11, 27 to 28. It says, Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now look, this guy says nothing about teaching Scripture, nor would his activity have anything in the world to do with whether or not the New Testament was complete or incomplete, for that matter. This prophecy deals with an immediate event, and it's applicable to an immediate situation. Agabus never gives a truth that escapes its time, like what we find in the rest of the teachings of the Bible. Or if you will, go two chapters later to Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, and we are told that there were prophets in the church in Antioch, and they seem to indicate that the Holy Spirit is saying that they are to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the first ever missionary trip. Again, that's not explaining Scripture. It's speaking to an immediate situation. In the same way, that's the kind of prophecy that I believe that 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21 is talking about. Yeah, I know. In our day, this matter has been horribly abused, and I'm not unaware of the utterly ridiculous things that some have said in the name of prophecy. You know, I'm also not unaware that some people have lost all appetite for serious Bible study, and now they spend their lives looking for the next word from the Lord. And furthermore, I'm not unaware of the unbridled evil that some televangelists who have soaked their hapless followers for money and have substituted a gospel of prosperity and healing for all in this life. Now, these people are deceivers, and they ought to be labeled as such. And that's why Paul, even when he speaks of not despising prophecies, in the same breath warns us to abstain from evil. One contemporary false teacher recently rebuked the coronavirus and said that he had now ended it, only to see that the death rate has gone up tenfold after he made his ridiculous and harmful prophetic statement. Yeah, I, like you, want nothing to do with that. And if you're following people like that, I have a word for you. Stop. But let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are times when God does have something to say to us personally, and he may use someone, a prophetic word, to say that. I have on several occasions received such a word from very reliable people. I don't despise that. Indeed, that may give you, if you hear it, a great deal of courage as you walk through something that may be discouraging at the time. And so five commands to people in distressing times. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Don't quench the spirit. And don't despise prophecies. And with that, Paul gives a beautiful benediction. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I notice three blessings Paul wants to bestow on the believers in Thessalonica, and not one of them has to do with relieving them of their distressing times. 
Instead, Paul is absolutely certain that God will complete the process of holiness or sanctification in the lives of these believers. That's his first marvelous promise. Then second, Paul anticipates that these believers will persevere faithfully to the end. Notice he speaks about their spirit, soul, and body being kept blameless. He's referring to their entire humanity, whether in the flesh or any other area or in the spiritual realm. And and just as an aside here, I don't think Paul is giving us a sense that he sees the spirit and the soul as different elements. Rather, he's using terms for emphasis. May everything in your humanity be blameless in the final day. I'm sure God will accomplish this, he says. And then thirdly, Paul expects and knows that God will accomplish this in believers. Like Philippians 1 verse 6, where Paul was convinced that he who began a good work in them would complete it. Here now, he believes the same for these believers. Indeed, for all who are truly born of the Spirit, it's a promise. God who has called us is faithful to fulfill his purposes in us. And with that prayer of blessing, Paul now ends the passage. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a wonderful final word. Pray for your leaders. Show great affection in greeting each other. Read scripture to each other. And when all is said and done, trust and believe that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will never fail us. These are great words to remain steadfast in distressing times. Pay attention to this letter, continue to read it, and God will surely do what he did for them in your life as well. John, thanks so much for a great series and for a great message today. In fact, it was an intriguing one. I like the title, Final Words to a Steadfast Church. Let me ask you, how's the church doing? Well, You know, I I, I want to quote from Dickens here and say these are the best of times and these are the worst of times. I suppose it's always been that way. Um, you know, I, with all the things that might be said about the church, I always remind myself this is the bride of Christ. Therefore, love what Christ loves. And, um, and uh, let's all be involved in not being harsh critics of the church. Let's be involved in trying to lift the church and to work for the betterment of the church so that we can be more like Christ. Um, let's be realistic about the church, but let's be optimistic about the church because our best days are surely ahead of us. Let's love the church of Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note, 
that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.